I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Americans spend over $400 billion each year on pharmaceuticals. Are we getting our money's worth? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. John Abramson has been asking questions about the pharmaceutical industry for decades. His first book was Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine. Now he's telling the inside story of how Big Pharma's pursuit of profits has affected our health. Do you know how well your medicine works? Does your physician know? And can she explain it to you? Find out how to calculate drug effectiveness. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, how Big Pharma broke American health care and what we can do to fix it. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, people taking certain cardiovascular medications may be at higher risk of a heart attack during heat waves. Yale researchers analyzed data from Augsburg, Germany between 2001 and 2014. There were nearly 2,500 heart attacks during the warm weather months. Careful review of the cases showed that people taking beta-blocker heart medicines or anti-clotting drugs such as aspirin, were significantly more likely to have a heart attack. If people were taking both types of medication, their risk of a heat-related heart attack was 75% higher. In a surprising observation, statins tripled the heart attack risk on very hot days, but only among people under 60 years old. People who were not taking these drugs were at no higher risk for heart attacks even when the temperatures were high. One hypothesis for the beta-blocker effect is that such drugs interfere with heat dissipation through vasodilation. If there's a lesson to this research, it would be that people taking anti-clotting drugs, beta-blockers, and statins should be extra careful when temperatures soar. Over 9 million Americans suffer from gout. This inflammatory condition is associated with high levels of uric acid in the bloodstream. When crystals precipitate into joints, they cause extreme pain. A new study published in JAMA shows a link between gout flare-ups and subsequent heart attacks or strokes. This case-control study included more than 60,000 patients with gout. The vulnerable period lasted up to four months after a gout attack. An editorial accompanying the research report suggests that healthcare providers be especially vigilant for cardiovascular complications after gout flares. Anti inflammatory drugs like aspirin and colchicin may be especially helpful. Preventing gout attacks through diet, adequate fluid intake, and appropriate uric acid lowering medications might be the best way of avoiding these cardiovascular complications. Headlines this week report that Lyme disease cases are surging. Insurance claims between 2007 and 2021 for this tick-borne infection increased nearly fourfold in rural areas. The black-legged tick that carries Borrelia burgdorferi has been expanding its territory. New England has been especially hard hit, but claims also rose dramatically in New Jersey. 
The CDC reports that there's a high incidence in mid-Atlantic states as well as Virginia, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Researchers have been trying to understand why people who eat more red meat and processed meat are at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease. Some have hypothesized that the problem is related to saturated fat and cholesterol, but new research from Tufts University and the Cleveland Clinic suggests that gut microbes may also play a role. The investigators recruited nearly 4,000 healthy adults over 65 years old and collected their data for an average of 12 and a half years. Those who ate more animal-sourced foods were 18% more likely to experience a heart attack, stroke, or death from a cardiovascular cause. In fact, total meat consumption in particular was linked to a 22% greater chance of such a disaster. Fish, poultry, and eggs did not contribute significantly to the risk. The scientists also examined the participants' gut microbes and chemicals produced by them, specifically trimethylamine N-oxide and its metabolites, gamma-butyrobetaine and crotonobetaine, were strongly linked to cardiovascular risk. Microbes in the intestinal tract create these compounds when they have a source of L-carnitine, which is found in muscle. This may add to the explanation of why a diet rich in processed or unprocessed red meat seems to be hazardous to the heart. The authors note that these compounds may play a more important role than cholesterol levels or blood pressure. Instead, the effect on blood sugar and insulin appear to be critical factors. Do labels providing nutrition information, including calories, affect purchasing habits? A study in JAMA Internal Medicine compared purchases before and after calorie labeling was instituted at 173 supermarkets in New England and New York. This change did result in a small to moderate decrease in the caloric content of bakery and deli items purchased. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. How well do your medicines work? That seemingly simple question is harder to answer than you might imagine. Most research on the medications you take is funded and controlled by the pharmaceutical industry. In addition, the regulatory agency charged with overseeing the drugs you take now relies heavily on fees paid by the manufacturers. How does Big Pharma influence physicians, hospitals, and researchers? To find out, we turn to Dr. John Abramson, who teaches healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. He was also a family physician for 22 years. Dr. Abramson has served as an expert in national pharmaceutical litigation. He's also been an unpaid consultant to the FBI and the Department of Justice, including in a case that resulted in the largest criminal fine in U.S. history. His books include Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine, and his latest book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. John Abramson. Terry and Joe, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you. Um, you know, Dr. Aberson, we we spend more on health care and get less in return than any other developed nation in the world. And you blame the dysfunction of poor health and high costs 
on the pharmaceutical industry? Why them in particular? Mm-hmm. That's a great question because um, only about 17% of our healthcare costs are uh, pharmaceuticals. But what has happened over the past 20 or 30 years is that the pharmaceutical industry has gained control of almost all of the knowledge that reaches physicians about how to best to practice medicine. And their control of that knowledge is now directing our healthcare system and pulling money away from effective healthcare into uh, paying for the latest, most expensive drugs. So what you're saying is a big part of the problem is our attitude that there's a pill for every ill? I think that is part of the problem. And you can see that um, Americans do want to believe that the latest drug or device is going to be the best. But I I think that's human nature, that we have hope and we express that hope sometimes in science, sometimes in spirituality. But I think the real problem is that the knowledge that doctors rely on is being manipulated to make the physicians and other healthcare providers believe that that's the best way to practice medicine. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Abramson. Uh, I had a tennis partner many years ago who worked for the industry. He had a prominent place at one of the drug companies. And he said, you know, all those TV commercials, you know, those prescription drug ads, they're actually aimed at both the patients slash consumers and the doctors. Mm-hmm, he said, mm-hmm. we, we see prescriptions increase. That is to say, you know, at the pharmacy within days, within days of those ads showing up on TV. And it's so fast. It's not enough time for people to get to their doctor's offices, have, have a, an appointment and get a prescription. It means that doctors are prescribing almost immediately when they see those commercials. And it doesn't mean that we have to send detail men, the old sales reps, into the doctor's office. All we have to do is put them on the evening news. I think that's right. And uh, a dirty little secret is that doctors watch TV, too. But I, I think the, the the most powerful dynamic in this is that doctors want to believe that they're providing their patients with the best possible therapy, the latest innovations, and that they're up to date. And when the doctors watch those ads on TV, they know their patients are watching them, too. And some doctors are going to believe that they will be practicing better medicine and uh, their their patient's respect will increase if they prescribe those new medicines right away. Well, the United States is an outlier when it comes to advertising prescription drugs on television. Only one other country in the world does it, and it's a small country. What I want to ask is, how much does that distort our healthcare system? A lot. Um, those ads have, we all know that they've taken off and now we see a drug ad in almost every segment of, uh, uh, between the segments of the news uh, shows. And uh, it seems to be that there's far less likelihood that there'll be an open and honest discussion about uh, healthcare issues on any segment that's bounded by a drug ad. So the by buying so much advertising, the pharmaceutical industry creates the illusion 
that their new drugs are going to be provide heretofore unavailable benefits. And at the same time, they're chasing people who might present the truth off of those uh, news shows. Now, it's not just commercials on television. You suggest that pharma controls medical research and to a certain extent influences medical education. Correct. Correct. I mean, pharma funds most of clinical research, about 86% of clinical research. And the end result is that 96% of the clinical research that's done in the United States is about drugs and devices. The reason for that is that investment in research and drugs and devices provides the greatest financial return. It's not complicated. The drug company's job is to maximize profits and return those profits to their shareholders. And they do that by funding research about their products. What's not really known by many doctors and most of the public is that the pharma's control over that research plays a great role in distorting the health benefits of new products. In what way? Well, for example, the pharmaceutical companies fund 86% of the clinical research, as I said. They own that data. That's not, that data is not available to the public. So they are in charge of analyzing the data. They're in charge of writing up the results and sending those manuscripts to medical journals where, they're peer, where the manuscript is peer-reviewed and then published in a journal. And if it is published, it's considered to be evidence-based medicine. What very few Americans know, healthcare professionals and lay people combined, is that the peer reviewers whose job it is to, is to analyze the manuscript to make sure that it's an accurate and reasonably complete representation of the clinical trial data, don't even get to see the clinical trial data. Whoa, whoa, wait that, a minute. Now, that, that seems like it's then they're being faced with an impossible task. How can you judge whether the manuscript has accurately presented the data if you don't actually know what the data are? You can't. And the peer reviewers know that they're not getting access to the original data, and yet they are willing to certify or faux certify that the data are accurate and complete. It's a corrupt system. And that we don't know it, that you don't know it at this point in your career, and that I just learned it at this point in my career in the last few years, is a demonstration of how totally the pharmaceutical industry controls the information that drives our healthcare system. Now, Dr. Abramson, this is not really a brand new phenomenon. Back in the 90s, maybe even in 1991, Joe and I went to a celebration, the centenary celebration of the uh, University of Michigan Pharmacology Department from which his degree was earned. And mm -hmm. They had a keynote speaker there who at the time, he's long since passed from the planet, but at the time he was president of the Upjohn Pharmaceutical Company. And he told the assembled researchers there that they were 
getting too much of their funding from the pharmaceutical industry, and they all sort of shifted nervously in their seats and laughed a little bit and pretended that they hadn't heard him. And nobody talked about whether or not they would ever address that in any way, and I've never seen it addressed. But obviously, this has been a concern that people have been aware of, thinking people have been aware of for a long time. Has it gotten worse in the last uh, two decades? Yes, it's absolutely gotten worse. And what's happened is not only has the control of the pharmaceutical industry over the research grown radically, and I'll tell you how radically in a second, but the the extent to which the drug companies control that data has grown. So in 1991, 80% of clinical trials were done in academic medical centers and 20% were done by the drug companies or contract research organizations that they hired to do their research for them. By 2004, that 80% that was being done in academic medical centers had gone down to 26%. So complete reversal, right? A, a complete reversal. And it's, it's really nearly 100% reversal because the academic medical centers were getting 26% of the research, but they had to abide by the drug companies contracting demands or they wouldn't get that 26% and they needed it. You are listening to Dr. John Abramson. He has 22 years of experience as a family physician and 25 years of teaching healthcare policy on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. He's the author of Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine. Dr. Abramson's latest book is Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. After the break, find out if our trust in medical journals might be misplaced. What are the differences between studies that get published and those that do not? What do drug companies really know about the safety and efficacy of their products? Do they share that data? What have we learned about pharmaceutical profits during the pandemic? And where did the money for the vaccine development come from? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform. 
Tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we are doing a deep dive into the way the pharmaceutical industry influences our health. When an article appears in a prestigious medical journal, it makes headlines around the world. Patients and doctors pay close attention to such research. The assumption is that it's been carefully vetted. Is that trust justified? Our guest is Dr. John Abramson. He's been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for 25 years, where he teaches health care policy. He also served as a family physician for 22 years and as an expert in national pharmaceutical litigation. Dr. Abramson is the author of Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine. His latest book is Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Dr. Abramson, a lot of the data that both health professionals and the public rely on are published in in medical journals, you know, highly respected journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, The Lancet, BMJ used to be the British Medical Journal. We could go down a whole list and we think of them as the ultimate arbiters, sort of like in the Olympics, the judges determine if the ice skating performance is fantastic or a total bust. Do we have a misplaced trust in medical journals interpreting the data and and providing, quote unquote, evidence based medicine for us all to make decisions? Because those articles end up on the front page of newspapers all across the country and and the evening news and become the criteria of the quality of physicians practices. And yes, we have a misplaced trust. It's an enormous problem. The analogy breaks down. Because the Olympic judges watching the figure skater get to see the whole performance. If there aren't uh, performance-enhancing drugs or other things that can happen behind the scenes, but they get to see the performance and make an independent evaluation of that performance. In the case of the medical journals, not only do they not get to see the performance, but they have a hidden incentive in making it easy to publish commercially attractive, commercially important articles. So they don't get to see the performance in the sense that the drug companies that sponsor the data own the data, and they do not make that data available to the peer reviewers or to the medical journal editors. So it's a matter of faith that the manuscripts that are submitted almost always overseen by the drug companies, it's a matter of faith that those manuscripts are accurate and reasonably complete. I spent 10 years as an expert in litigation, in the big national litigation. And in that role, I got to be inside the corporate computers, literally get the hard drives from the involved executives and business people and scientists and marketing people And I got to see how much of a difference there can be between the underlying data and what's published in the medical journals. Now, the problem is that we have a paradigm that says that articles that are published in respected journals, peer-reviewed respected journals, are the basis of evidence-based medicine. They are the basis of evidence-based medicine. 
The problem is that evidence-based medicine isn't based on the evidence. And we've got a complete sham going on. And then to complicate it even more, a significant portion of the profits of the most prestigious journals like the Lancet New England Journal, JAMA, come from selling reprints of the articles they publish back to the drug makers to be handed out by their salespeople to physicians. So essentially using the articles as marketing tools. So the big journals have an incentive to publish those articles that will be attractive enough to the drug makers to have them buy the articles back. In Vioxx, the biggest drug recall in American history, the New England Journal had sold between 800, excuse me, 680,000 and more than $800,000 worth of reprints back to Merck. Most of those after the New England Journal knew that the article that they were selling to be handed out underrepresented the cardiovascular risk to patients. Can you tell us, please, Dr. Abramson, a little bit more about what you've learned as um, participating in, in the trials about the differences between what gets published and what the drug companies actually know about the safety and the efficacy of their product? Sure. Um, let's just pick up with Vioxx, <clears throat> which is chapter one of the book. The drug companies failed to report in the manuscript they submitted to the New England Journal that there was unequivocal evidence that Vioxx more than doubled the risk of cardiovascular complications, heart attacks, blood clots, and strokes. It, this is unequivocal data. The FDA had it and knew it. And Merck did not submit that data to the New England Journal. And that data did not get included in the New England Journal article that published the results of those of that trial, the VIGOR trial. So when doctors read the article in the New England Journal, evidence-based, the most prestigious journal in the world, what they read is that although Vioxx was no more effective at relieving pain than over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs, it was better because it was safer when in fact it was significantly more dangerous and the Merck folks knew that. Dr. Abramson, we've been giving the pharmaceutical industry a hard time, maybe because of their commercials on television that a lot of people find objectionable, or maybe because the evidence is not being completely revealed. And so evidence-based medicine may not have all the evidence, but I want to ask you about all of the breakthroughs. I mean, you know, drug companies have developed amazing drugs against HIV AIDS hepatitis C, cystic fibrosis, cancer, COVID. I mean, shouldn't we be in awe of these advances? We should be in awe of good medical science. There's no question about that. The drug companies control all of the medical science related to pharmaceuticals. It all comes through the drug industry. The problem is that when we complain about the drug company misrepresenting data or being too greedy, we're forgetting that the drug companies have one primary job, and that is to maximize the financial returns to their investors. 
It's not to improve our health individually. It's not to improve the health of the American people overall. It's to maximize their investments. But because they're so, the drug companies are so able to create this aura that their innovation is what is bringing us health, that it's impossible for people, ordinary people and for doctors as well, to remember that their job is to make money. And if we wanna have the drug companies serve the interests of society, we can't let them oversee themselves because their job is to make money. They need to be overseen by external uh, organizations to make sure that as they make money, they're providing uh, fair value to the American people. And they clearly are not. So the, we, we think about the drug companies as being the innovators in our health, depending on their innovation. Well, that's not the case. About 80% of our health has to do with how we live our lives. But that gets lost when, when you see two ad, drug ads between every segment on the news, or one at least, the message gets lost that 80% of our health is in our own hands. Now, Dr. Abramson, during the pandemic, there was a lot of actual news regarding pharmaceuticals. Um, the development of the COVID vaccines in kind of record time, a totally interesting type of, uh, of uh, vaccine, um, the pills that can be used or the injections that can be used early in a, an infection to keep somebody from getting into deep, deep trouble. What have we learned during the pandemic about pharmaceutical profits? Well, we've learned both sides of the uh, evaluation of the drug companies. A, their science is fabulous. They built on uh, the NIH's research that was completed in 2016 that allowed turning the genetic code for the coronavirus into a vaccine in a mere two months. I mean, it was unbelievable science. But at the same time, their model of greed, Pfizer and Moderna both, their model of greed was to extract as much money as they could from the first world and sell whatever they had left to the poorer countries, but not to worry about the poorer countries. And in this particular case, it wasn't just a matter of injustice, uh, of uh, inequity about the distribution of vaccine. It ensured that the goal of giving the vaccines to Americans, which is to decrease the, the disease and death caused by coronavirus for Americans, the greed of maximizing their profits in the first world and relatively ignoring the third world ensured that variants, Delta, Omicron, and more variants to come, would come back and wreak havoc on Americans. So they have this fabulous science and the vaccines work. I can tell you, uh, I can give you instances of when their profiteering compromised the information that we had about the vaccines and the anti-vaxxers pick that up and make an argument, but the vaccines work. There's no question about it. But by shortchanging the less wealthy countries, the vaccine makers have ensured that variants are gonna keep coming back to the United States and we're gonna keep doing this. 
there has to be vaccine equity, not just because that's the fair and moral thing to do, but because that's the only way to protect Americans. Dr. Abramson, how much money have the big pharma companies made on the vaccines and now the, you know, antibodies and the oral drugs? I mean, it must be a lot. It is a lot. Uh, Pfizer is going to sell half again more billions of dollars of vaccine than has ever been sold for any drug uh, in history. Humira was previously the best-selling drug at $20 billion a year. And now these vaccines are going to sell almost $70 billion. Just Pfizer vaccines are going to sell almost $70 billion over the first two years of the pandemic. And the profit rate is estimated to be somewhere between 60 and 80% of their sales, their more than $30 billion sales in the second year of the pandemic. So these are the most lucrative drugs that have ever been uh, marketed. And it's been very cleverly done because they're supposedly free. You, you hear all the time, get your vaccination, it's free. Well, it's free to the consumer, but it is not free to the American people. So where does all that money come from, Dr. Abramson? Taxpayers. So our taxes are paying this $70 billion, billion to Pfizer. You said this is just Pfizer. Mm-hmm. And another mm-hmm. huge amount of money, presumably, to Moderna and yeah, J&J. Yeah, yep, $30 billion or so for Moderna. Yep. It, uh, it boggles the mind. It boggles the mind, especially because Operation Warp Speed, as successful as it was in getting vaccines to Americans first, and it did, um, when the United States realized, and to President Trump's credit, he realized that this was going to be a disaster and we better throw money at it and a lot of money. And I think that was exactly the right thing to do. But while we were throwing money at it, we didn't negotiate the amount of profit that the drug companies could make in an, on an ongoing basis, and we didn't negotiate a mandate to provide some important baseline amount of vaccination to the third world. Our government just ignored both of those things when they were paying the bills and they were in control. Now, you know, this is very different from the uh, SOC and the Sabin vaccine for polio. Uh, Terry got, I, I had polio as a child, so I, mm-hmm. I, I, I look back on those days and then go, wow, that was a, a wonderful advance. Uh, and Terry got the, the vaccine. Uh, which one do you think it was, Terry? No, it was the shot. The shot. So you probably and got I, the I think the I was sock. part of the clinical trial in Boston. But the people who mm-hmm. innovated in 1952 cre- created those vaccines didn't get super rich as a result of it. Jonas Salk did not patent his the vaccine that he developed and said, can you patent the sun? Meaning it's it's nature's work. It's God's work. You can't own that. And now what we're doing is all the science that's being done, virtually all the science that's being done is being done f- by for-profit companies whose job is, this is not an accusation. This is not a comment on their morals. 
their job is to maximize their profits and they do it very well. And if they don't do it well, they get replaced. Now, we've been talking about, you know, wonderful, exciting, terrific advances, whether it's for HIV or, or whether it's for, you know, a rare condition like cystic fibrosis. But what about an old drug like insulin? Okay, so uh, bioengineered insulin uh, first came out in 1982. And uh, the second generation called insulin analogs came out in 1996. The insulin analogs cost about 10 times more than the earlier form of bioengineered insulin in the United States, 10 times more. The problem is the price is too high, but the real problem is that for people with type two diabetics who use about 80% of the insulin in the United States, they don't need the insulin analogs and the doctors don't know that. The organizations that provide guidance to them, funded by the drug companies, have convinced the doctors to prescribe the more expensive insulin when the less expensive insulin would do equally well. You're listening to Dr. John Abramson. He has 22 years of experience as a family physician and 25 years of teaching healthcare policy on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. He's the author of Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine. Dr. Abramson's latest book is Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. After the break, we'll talk about statins, one of the most commonly prescribed class of medicines in the world. How well do they work to prevent heart attacks? Why are there such strong differences of opinion about statin side effects? There's quite a discrepancy between the data from studies on statins and what doctors think about these cholesterol-lowering drugs. We don't tell people about how healthful lifestyle approaches might compare to medications like statins. Is that a system failure? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia. 
the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. At last count, more than 40 million Americans were taking statin-type cholesterol-lowering medications. Worldwide, the number is estimated at over 200 million. How well do these drugs work to protect people from cardiovascular calamity? We are talking with Dr. John Abramson, who teaches health care policy at Harvard Medical School. He was also a family physician for 22 years. Dr. Abramson has served as an expert in national pharmaceutical litigation and as an unpaid consultant to the FBI and Department of Justice, including in a case that resulted in the largest criminal fine in U.S. history. His books include Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine, and his latest book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Dr. Abramson, Chapter 3 in Sickening is all about statins, a drug, a class of drugs that Joe and I have been very interested in for a long time. Millions of people take them. No, no, tens of millions of people. Tens of millions of people take them and I'm sure spend a lot of money on them, even though many of them are now generic. Um, But so many of the people taking statins are taking them to prevent an initial heart attack. They are people who have high cholesterol, Before they take statins, presumably they have low cholesterol while they're on statins, but they don't actually have heart disease. How well do statins work to prevent a heart attack or to keep someone from dying of a heart attack or other cardiovascular complication? So we need to be clear about dividing this into primary and secondary prevention, Terry. And I think you're addressing the primary prevention group, which means folks who have not had a history of cardiovascular disease. How well do they prevent people from dying? There's not a statistically significant benefit. And I published, I was the lead author of a paper in the British Medical Journal that was published in 2013 that reanalyzed the cholesterol treatment trialist data they're, I hope we can talk about that, but they're the organization at Oxford that actually does get the full data, but they don't share it. And they claim that there's benefit. We recalculated, found there wasn't. The CTT came after us and tried to have our paper retracted and demanded our paper be retracted from the BMJ. And it turned into an enormous kerfuffle. A panel of six experts was appointed by the BMJ to see if there was any evidence to support retraction. And the panel was unanimously against retraction. And the problem was that the CTT was trying to suppress our telling the truth about the limited benefit of statins. So not a significant death benefit. And in terms of the benefit for people at elevated risk, but not not above 20% risk over 10 years. So this is the 7.5 to 20% 10-year risk group. You have to treat 
a hundred of those people for five years with a statin to prevent one non-fatal heart attack or stroke. And the other 99 people are not going to get any benefit out of it, but will be exposed to the risk of side effects. Uh, that is another issue altogether. What we keep hearing from doctors who prescribe statins and some people who actually study statins is side effects. Statins don't really have side effects. If you look at uh, the placebo arm in a statin trial versus the uh, statin arm, the active arm, you, you can't detect any uh, side effects from statins. It drives us crazy. Correct. And you can't detect any difference because no difference was looked for. Only the most extreme side effects are looked for, but not real people side effects like muscle pain um, and uh, the risk of cataracts and the other problems that arise. The problem, the reason why the air quotes experts claim that statins don't cause side effects is because the clinical trials are all paid for by the drug industry, and they don't look for side effects. There was a, uh, a an article in JAMA that addressed this problem, and they said out of 41 clinical trials of statins, only one asked prospectively about whether people were experiencing muscle pain or not. And that study found a significant incidence of muscle pain over a six-month period. Dr. Abramson, your colleagues physicians really believe that statins are saving lots of lives, are preventing huge numbers of heart attacks and strokes. And yet when you give us the number needed to treat or the um, absolute risk reduction, those numbers are not terribly impressive. Why do you think there's such a disconnect between the data that you're reporting and what most physicians believe? Because the publications about the statins are controlled by people who are funded by or indirectly funded by the drug companies. And a real problem is that the guidelines are dependent on the drug company generated data, but don't have access to the real data to independently analyze. So when the United States issues new guidelines, the experts who write those guidelines are in the same position as the peer reviewers and medical journal editors we talked about earlier. They have to make recommendations for everybody and set the standards of good care and when uh, practicing docs should prescribe statins. They do not have access to the real data. They have to depend on the data that's been published which, as we said before, has been approved by peer reviewers who don't have access to the data. So it's a house of cards. And the docs don't understand it. They don't understand uh, the financial connections between the guidelines and the, um, and the recommendations. And they don't understand that all of this is based on the good faith of an accurate reporting of the drug industry whose job is not to accurately report. Its job is to maximize the profits that are returned to its investors. So we're essentially like playing a basketball game without referees and, and asking professional athletes to call their own fouls. It's a ridiculous situation. And that is the reason why I wrote this book, because people do not understand 
how corrupt the knowledge is that doctors who are hardworking, doing their best, have been trained to and have to trust. Dr. Abramson, before we move on from statins, and we will move on in a moment, the guidelines distinguish between primary prevention, people who don't have heart disease but do have high cholesterol, and secondary prevention, people who have had a heart attack or who already have heart disease. What can you tell us about the utility of statins for people who have heart disease? Right. And Terry, just a minor modification. The guidelines are based on the risk of developing cardiovascular disease over the next 10 years, and the actual LDL level or cholesterol level has been taken out of the guidelines. Just a minor detail. But for people who already have heart disease, and the uh, impression is that they must be on statins, um, and doctors, all doctors would say, or almost all doctors would say, must be on statins, you have to treat 30 people for secondary prevention, people who have had cardiovascular disease. You have to treat 30 of those people for five years with a statin to prevent one heart attack or stroke. The other 29 people won't benefit. Now, at first blush, when you hear that, you think, well, that's crazy. Why would people take a, why would a doctor prescribe a drug that's only going to help one out of 30 people? But most doctors, when confronted with that number needed to treat, think it's reasonable to treat people with statins if you have a one out of 30 chance of preventing a heart attack or stroke. And I agree with that. I'm in favor of that, as long as people aren't having side effects. But people need to understand that the number needed to treat is 30. It's not one. It's not if you take this, you won't have a heart attack or stroke. And if you uh, don't take it, you will. You have to treat 30 people for one to prevent one event. And you have to treat 80 people for five years who've had already have cardiovascular disease, 80 people to prevent one death. So I think it should be a decision that's made between uh, healthcare providers and patients on an individual basis. But I think a reasonable way to approach this is to lean towards prescribing the statin and say that we don't know the incidence of side effects. So take the statin and get the protection. It's not a huge amount of protection, but it's definitely some protection. And if you develop side effects, which may be muscle pain or other side effects, then come back and we'll talk about whether we should explore getting off statins. Dr. Abramson, you've written in Sickening that um, it's a common failure to meet the ethical standard that we don't actually tell people what the effect of healthy lifestyle interventions are. And in fact, I think they're rarely really studied. Could you address that, please? Terry, you're absolutely right. They are rarely studied. And of all the trials, the statins have been on the market since 1987. And of all the trials of statins, there's never been a study that compared the benefits of healthy lifestyle adoption in preventing cardiovascular disease, comparing that to the benefit of statins. It's craziness. And the problem is that the drug companies fund the studies and their purpose of those studies is to highlight the benefits of their drugs. And they have absolutely no interest and a strong incentive not to compare their drugs to lifestyle. We need a mechanism for making that a mandatory part of studies that are um, 
commercially funded. And it would be very easy to do that. If a, if a drug company wanted to do a study of a statin, or now we have other uh, heart disease preventing uh, drugs that are coming out, fine, they can pay their money and do the study. But the NIH ought to be able to add at public expense a lifestyle arm to that study to see if lifestyle is as good as or better than the statin or the cholesterol lowering drug. So we've drifted into this complacency of letting the drug companies study only their products and not comparing their products to lifestyle. And it makes no sense whatsoever in terms of a public health point of view. Now, Dr. Abramson, I have a few other things on my wish list, and I wonder what you think about them. Number one, I'd like to see all those prescription drug ads off television and you know, join the majority of developed nations that don't allow that sort of thing. That's number one. Number two, I'd like the FDA to have more teeth and be a little more on the side of consumers and patients than perhaps on the side of the drug companies. We won't get into my pet peeve about the new Alzheimer's drug called Adjuhelm, but then there's a whole other issue, and that's the conflict of interest, the idea that the FDA takes a huge amount of money from the pharmaceutical industry, both brand and generic, uh, to fund its projects. And then finally, there are an awful lot of physicians who have a conflict of interest uh, because they are taking money directly from the pharmaceutical industry and may have an influence on the guidelines. Your thoughts? Absolutely. So number one, direct-to-consumer advertising. Uh, unfortunately, I think we're stuck with it. The lawyers who I talk to who understand constitutional law say that it is uh, the direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceuticals is an inherent part of our uh, free speech. And uh, so it can't be banned. But what's happening is it's being exploited to the disservice of American people. So the drug ads have uh, pretty music and butterflies and dogs catching Frisbees and all this wonderful stuff. And they're not leaving the viewers or listeners with an accurate impression of the real benefit of the drug. We talked about number needed to treat for statins. The number needed to treat should be an integral part of every drug ad so people know what their chance is of benefiting. If you had number needed to treat for an ad for statins for secondary prevention, you would say one out of 30 people who takes this drug for five years will uh, avoid having a heart attack or stroke. And people need to know that. So we can't get rid of the ads, but we could make them leave viewers with an accurate impression of the benefits of the drug and alternatives. And with statins, a big alternative, you, you can block 80%, uh, prevent 80% of heart disease and stroke by living a healthy lifestyle, not smoking, not drinking in excess, um, having uh, a healthy uh, body weight. So that's number one. So uh, the FDA, their job is not to help doctors know which drugs to prescribe. Their job is to say what, doc what drugs doctors can prescribe, but not what they should prescribe. In the United States, we don't have an organization that looks at the data and uh, informs doctors about best therapy, and we need that. 
In terms of conflict of interest in the FDA, you're absolutely correct. 61% of the part of the FDA that looks at uh, therapies for humans is paid for by drug, uh, the drug companies. And that's craziness. The federal government can afford to pay the bills of the FDA and have an independent FDA. And finally, physicians' conflicts of interest in the guidelines, it's craziness. It's just craziness to have this going on, that doctors who have financial ties to drug companies are making guidelines that tell other doctors what quality of care is. Dr. Abramson, your wonderful book is titled Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Now, you have laid out very clearly how broken our system is. Please tell us how we can start to fix it. So taking an overview, our system is not providing American people with the benefit of our healthcare spending. And this is a problem of a under-regulated industry. It, it cannot get fixed without government oversight. But government oversight can't happen because the lobbying and the political contributions and the power of the pharmaceutical and biotech industry is too great. So what we need to do is recreate a functional democracy in the United States with regard to healthcare. And the way to do that is to build a, a tripartite coalition, a three-part coalition. First is healthcare professionals who need to understand that they cannot do their job without access to information about how to best improve Americans' health. And that peer-reviewed articles uh, that are have not where the peer reviewers have not had transparent access to the data, and a research agenda that is prioritized to provide maximum financial return to investors isn't going to get us there. So doctors are unable to perform their role as learned intermediaries in providing the best health care to their patients, and they need to get involved. Number two, the purchases, the non-healthcare-related purchases of healthcare, which means all of the non-healthcare businesses in the United States and the unions and the government programs that buy healthcare, need to form an alliance where they represent their own interests so the products that they're buying have fair value. They're spending a fair amount for drugs and other healthcare costs, and they're getting a fair benefit for their employees or the people they represent. And then the third part of this tripartite coalition is by far the biggest part, and that is American consumers. And the American people need to understand that our health now ranks 68th in the world in healthy life expectancy. And for this disastrous health, we are spending a trillion and a half dollars extra. That's $4,500 in an unlegislated tax per person for every American man, woman, and child every year for health care that's less effective than the health care in every other wealthy country. So the American consumers need to get together and say, we are getting ripped off 
And we need protection so that we get the benefit of the bargain with the money that we spend for health care. We need to get health. So those three parties could form together into a coalition that could be powerful enough to overcome the money and the political relationships and the lobbying that the pharmaceutical and biotech industries exert over Congress. But it will not change until such a coalition it bands together to create more power than the drug companies have. Dr. John Abramson, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Terry and Joe, thank you so much for the opportunity to share these ideas with your audience. You've been listening to Dr. John Abramson. He's been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for 25 years, where he teaches healthcare policy. He also served as a family physician for 22 years. He served as an expert in national pharmaceutical litigation and as an unpaid consultant to the FBI and Department of Justice, including in a case that resulted in the largest criminal fine in U.S. history. He's the author of Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine. Dr. Abramson's latest book is Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Today's show is number 1310. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can post your comments to let us know what you think about today's interview. The podcast for this show has just a little extra information. It's available through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.